Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. It's not hard to see that we have idolized romance, but what good thing has romance idolized? What does healthy, godly romance look like? You're listening to Modern Day Idols, Romance by Reverend Peter Yonker. This morning's sermon, the last of our idol series, this is the last Sunday in Lent. Next Sunday morning is Easter morning. Our scripture reading is um, Genesis 29. It's a long scripture reading, fair warning. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but it's a really good story. The story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Um, as I said, or maybe I didn't say, today's idol is romance. And there were some younger members of the congregation who came to me prior to this sermon. They saw it coming and they said, when, um, Pastor Yonker, when you preach on this, please don't look at us <laughs> when you're preaching. I make no such promises. Let's read this great story from Genesis 29. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. Jacob is, of course, at this point running away from Esau after stealing his birthright. And there Jacob saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. And when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. And then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran they said. And he said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. And then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time, is it not time for the, it is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we'll water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered all his uncle's sheep. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that she he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older daughter was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. 
So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpha to his daughter as her attendant. And when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give our younger daughter in marriage before our older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we'll give you the younger one as well in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he's given me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. This is the word of the Lord. I really enjoyed studying Genesis 29. It's a great passage. It's a story you hear as a child But then you go back to as an adult and you realize there's all these details that you didn't see before. And that's what makes it interesting. And one of the things I found as I studied it, and this with the help of commentators and with the help especially this week of Tim Keller and his writings on this passage, I realized that in many ways, Genesis 29 is a romance. A biblical romance. Not a conventional modern romance. And not like the romances that you find at D&W or Meyer, those paperbacks on the shelves, okay? If you were to make a cover for Genesis 29, it would not be um, Jacob sort of leaning over Rachel with his shirt falling off, okay? It's not that kind of romance. This is a biblical romance. And there's some overlap. There's some elements that are same and some elements that are different. And, And figuring out what's different is how you see the gospel in this story. So let's look at it and see what this biblical romance teaches us about romance and love in a biblical sense. I love the opening scene. Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau, whose birthright he's stolen. And he's on the run towards his mother's people, right? He's trying to take refuge with his mother's brother. 
and he comes to this place that he doesn't remember. He comes to a well, and it's sort of middle of the day, it's hot, and there's a few shepherds and a few flocks of sheep around, um, but there's a big stone over the well, and no one's drinking because the stone is, is really big, and, and it's not until all the shepherds come that they are able to move that stone and, and drink and water their sheep. So Jacob comes in the middle of the day, he sees the shepherds there, and he says, hey, you guys from around these parts? And they say, yeah, we're from around here. Do you happen to know Laban? Oh, yeah, sure we know Laban. In fact, here comes his daughter now. And Jacob turns, and there in the distance, in the shimmering heat, he sees this beautiful, dark-haired woman walking towards him. If this was a movie, Rachel would be walking in slow motion, and Pretty Woman would be playing in the soundtrack. Then comes one of my favorite moments in the whole story. And this is one of those adult moments that I'd never noticed before. Jacob sees Rachel coming and is so overwhelmed with the sight of this beautiful woman that he single-handedly walks over to the stone on top of the well and in a manly display, he lifts it off and throws it aside and waters all of Rachel's sheep. This is Jacob's Charles Atlas moment. Okay? This, it's very conventional, it's very stereotypical, but this is a manly display in front of a beautiful woman, okay? And I, I know this is a stereotype, but uh, uh, male vanity being what it is, um, there's something in us. If, if a female gives us a jar and says to us, I can't get this open, could you try it? And we manage to pop off that lid, oh man, there's something in us. And what, what, what Jacob feels here is that times a thousand, Okay, that times a thousand. Because Jacob is basically opening a really big jar. The text doesn't say it exactly, but you, if you read between the lines, it's very clear. At this point, Jacob is already head over heels for Rachel. He is utterly smitten with her. Scene two takes place at Laban's house. Jake has been working for Laban for about a month and Laban says, hey, I, you know, I ought to pay you something. What, what can I pay you? And Jacob, still full of this overwhelming love for Rachel, says, I want nothing in this world more than your daughter's hand in marriage. She is my muse. She is my morning star. She is my everything. I will work seven years for the, your daughter's hand. Based on my studies, this was an extravagant gesture. Seven years of labor was like the highest price that you would ever pray for a bride in that culture. So Jacob is saying, I will do whatever it takes for your daughter's hand. So he works for seven years. And when the seven years are up, Jacob's passion is as strong as ever. And he goes to his father-in-law and in a very undiplomatic way says, give me your daughter. I want to make love to her, which is not the way to approach your father-in-law. It's jarring, right? I'm sure if you were listening, you were jarred by what he said in the story. And it's meant to be jarring because it's meant to show you that he's still just full of passion, full of love. He's just overflowing with romantic desire. So much so that even when Laban pulls that midnight stunt and switches sisters, Jacob is still willing to work another seven years for Rachel's hand. He is absolutely smitten. So I think we can see when you look at all those details, that there are 
elements of romance in this story. There's elements of, of, of romantic passion from the beginning to the end. But if we look closely, there are important differences too. Not a modern romance. If this were a modern romance, Jacob's passion would be held up as a uniformly good thing. Jacob's passion would have been held up as an example. Every man should seek to be romantic like Jacob, and every woman should want someone to love them the way Jacob loved Rachel. That's what a modern romance would say. This is, this is great, it would say. And if it's for a modern romance, the ending would be the wedding. That's how modern rom-coms end, right? Always with a wedding. The two, Jacob and Rachel, would be looking into each other's eyes, and the confetti would come down, and they'd give each other a passionate kiss, and then the credits would roll. But that's not the way that Genesis 29 goes, and that's not the way Genesis 29 ends. If you read Genesis 29 carefully, and if you read the story of Rachel and Leah and Jacob as it progresses, it's very clear that Jacob's obsessive passion for Rachel is not uniformly a good thing. In fact, it becomes a destructive force. Remember our definition of what an idol is. An idol is a good thing, a God-created thing, and that's romance. Good thing, God-created thing, lifted up too high or twisted out of shape so that it becomes destructive. You read the stories of Genesis 29, 30, and following, it's very clear that Jacob's passion is exactly that, an idol. Where do we see the destructive side of Jacob's passion? We see it in the hurt that it causes to Leah. You can feel it at the end of the passage, right? How hurt Leah is that she's essentially unloved by Jacob. You see it in the way she names her children. Jacob is so passionate about Rachel, he has no time for Leah. Leah is pushed to the side, and she is wounded by that. Jacob's obsessive passion damages the relationship between the sisters. I assume they used to get along just fine, but after Jacob comes into their life, there is real conflict. In chapter 30, Leah is jealous of Rachel because of Jacob's attentions. And Rachel is jealous of Leah because she keeps having those babies and they're just at each other's throats. And then the worst damage of all is the damage that Jacob's obsessive passion does to his family. Think of what Jacob's family turns out to be. Think of Jacob's kids. Would you say that Jacob's family is a healthy, functional family? Not so much, right? All the brothers try to kill one of the other brothers. Why do they do that? Why do the brothers try to kill Joseph? Because Joseph is insufferable, right? He's a braggart. He's proud. Why is he that way? Because his dad spoils him, buys him gifts, pays more attention to him. Why does his dad spoil him and buy him gifts? Because he's Rachel's son. Because of his obsessive passion for Rachel. It's always about Rachel. Jacob's romance is a kind of idol that causes damage wherever it goes. Romance is a great thing, but when it's lifted up too high, it is a destructive force. That was a problem for Jacob. Is it a problem in our world, romance? Is romance lifted up too high and made into an idol? Absolutely it is. As part of my study for this sermon, I read a banner article published back in 2016 
by a, a girl, she was 21 at the time, named Mary Ellen Hoffland. She was a senior at Dork College at the time. And she was writing about what it was like to be a single girl, single person, in today's society. And she starts her article off with this, this admission that she sort of puts out in front of us and I put out in front of you. She says, I am 21 years old, I'm a senior in college, and I have never been on a date, she says. 21 years old, I've never been on a date. She pauses to let that sink in. And then she says this, what did you feel when you read that sentence? And I ask you, what did you feel when you heard me say that about that 21-year-old girl? I'm guessing, says Mary Ellen, that you felt sorry for me. But I am not looking for pity. I only mentioned that to demonstrate your own reaction. You see, whether you admit it or not, our culture has taught us that the single life is something to be pitied. What is worse is that I too, says Mary Ellen, have adopted this strange intuition that if only I were to fall head over heels in love with someone, then all my days would be splendidly happy. The world has trained me that being in a romantic relationship is the only thing that will make me truly happy. Is Ms. Hoffman right? I think she absolutely is. And I think a lot of single people, not just young, but middle-aged and old, would agree that our world assumes that romance is an essential key to happiness. How does our culture teach that? All sorts of ways. If you listen carefully to our culture speak, it's constantly saying some version of somewhere out there, there is a person for you, and if you find that person, and if you fall in love with that person, all your dreams will come true. It's a kind of mythology of romance, and it's everywhere. It's in thousands and thousands of pop songs. It's in every single one of those paperback novels that I talked about earlier in D&W and Meyer and in bookstores, all those romance novels. It's in an awful lot of romantic comedies that we like to watch as movies. This mythology of romance is the mythology underneath the TV series, the very much watched TV series, The Bachelor, as a kind of a toxic view of romance in my opinion. It's a story that's pumped up by a thousand Facebook and Instagram posts of perfectly curated couples standing together made to look like their happiness is complete. It's a story lifted up by a wedding industry that makes people spend more and more and more money on more and more extravagant weddings all in the name of exalting romance. The romance and its mythology is absolutely inescapable in our world, so it's no wonder that we end up feeling sorry for people like Mary Ellen Hoffland. There are a couple of problems with this idealization of romance that our society puts up there. And, and, and the first and most important of these is that it's simply not biblical. The Bible does not make romance, it does not make singleness into a kind of disability. The Bible does say it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for men and women to be all by themselves. Loneliness is a bad thing. But loneliness and singlehood are not necessarily the same things. And in fact, in 
Matthew 22, Jesus tells us that marriage is not an ultimate institution. In the new creation, after the resurrection of the righteous, Jesus says, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, that does not mean that in the new creation you will not see or be reunited with your spouse. I'm not saying that. But it won't be the same. Somehow, your relationship will be better and deeper, but it won't be like marriage, and it probably won't have that same romantic tinge. 1 Corinthians 7. Paul talks about marriage and singleness. And he says to singles, you know, it would be better for you if you stayed single like me. Paul seems to lift up singleness just a little bit higher than marriage. So biblically, singleness is absolutely not some sort of pitiable estate. It is a perfectly acceptable thing. So that's one problem with the mythology of romance. The second problem is that in reality, and this is true of all idols, romantic relationships can't bear the weight of all your hope. To put it in specific personal terms, there is no human being out there who can carry all your hopes and dreams for happiness. One of the most famous lines in romantic comedies, and if you go online, maybe you know, you can Google like top 20 romantic comedy lines ever. This line shows up all the time. It's from the movie Jerry Maguire. And it's a line that Tom Cruise delivers to Renee Zellweger in that movie. And I'll bet many of you know what I'm going to say already as I say it. And it's a moment where, where Tom Cruise finally admits his love for Renee Zellweger, his character, and what he says to her is, you complete me. You complete me, he says. And it's a really heightened romantic moment, and she's swept away by that moment. You complete me. You, I have this empty place inside of me, and you fill it up. I have this hole, and, and, and you fill that hole with happiness. That's, what, that's the implication of what Cruz is saying. Now, is that romantic? Would it be nice to have someone to come to you and say, you complete me? Of course it would. But think about it. You might like it in the moment, but over time, someone telling me that I complete them would be an intolerable burden. I'm just a regular human being. You're just a regular human being. I can't even fill all the holes in my own soul. How am I supposed to fill up your soul? I can't be the ground on which you stand on. I can't be your hope. I can't be the one who is your firm foundation. I'm not that strong. I can't complete anyone. When people lift up romance as an idol, they make it sound like there's a person out there who can make you happy, but then people get into actual relationships and they find out that other human beings are broken and fickle and the idol falls, and sometimes so does the relationship and so does the marriage. Ultimately, there's only one person who can bear the weight of all our hopes and dreams and fantasies. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. I said that Genesis 29 had a very different ending from a traditional romantic comedy. And I said that if it were a traditional romantic comedy, it would end with a wedding, with Rachel and Jacob looking into each other's faces and completing each other and feeling perfect happiness. But that's not how Genesis 29 ends. Genesis 29 ends with Leah. 
and a very different kind of love. Jacob treats Leah badly, and she's wounded, and she's sad. Jacob clearly loves Rachel tremendously and and hardly gives Leah the time of the day, performs his husbandly duties, and that's it. And God sees Leah's suffering and moves towards the suffering person, as he always does, and gives her children. And for the first three of those children, you can see that Leah is still longing for Jacob. All the names have meanings. At least now my husband will love me. Maybe now my husband will be attached to me for the first three kids. And then for the fourth kid, something changes. Now I will praise the Lord. And she names him Judah. Do you see how the angle of Leah's vision has changed? For the first three kids, she's still looking at Jacob and hoping that Jacob will complete her. For the fourth kid, she turns her face towards her Lord and to the Lord's the only name that can possibly hold her in this world. Human relationships do not work. And this is not only true of romances. This is true of all human relationships. Human relationships do not work if we put all our hopes in the person in front of us because we're broken people and we will let each other down. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your siblings, your pastor, your church members, fellow church members, they are broken people and they will let you down if you're looking for them for hope. You know where romance starts best? You know where the best place for romance to start? At the foot of the cross. And I know that sounds weird. The cross does not seem like a romantic place. But the best place for healthy romance to start is at the foot of the cross. Why? Because at the cross, we look up and we put our face on Jesus, who is our hope. And at the cross, we see that we are broken people. We are sinful people. That's why he's dying. But we're also really beloved. He loves us so much that he's pouring himself out for us. So we're these broken people, but who are saved by this grace that will not let us go. And once we start there, then we can turn to the person beside us whom we want to love and see them as they really are, as a broken person saved by grace. And that allows us to accept when they are broken and forgive them and give them mercy and pour out the grace that we have received. The Bible often uses something that sounds like a romantic metaphor to describe our relationship with Jesus. We are the bride, and he is the groom. And we hear that and we think, oh, romance. But when you know the whole story, you realize it's not really romance. When you realize how much the bride has failed, how unfaithful we've been, how many times we've fallen down, you realize that the love that the groom has for us is not really romantic at its heart. It's covenantal. It's unconditional. It's eternal. It's the kind of love you can build a life on. It's the kind of love to which you give your soul, your life, your all. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for this amazing love that's at the center of our life. We thank you that this week we get to come to the foot of your cross and remember it and and remember again how 
we have this eternal love that we don't deserve that lifts us up and holds us together. Pray, Lord, that you will fill us with that love again this week so that we may love each other well and with lots of grace. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.